Advent is the season of waiting, of preparing, of hoping. Each Sabbath, we listen to the prophets from old. We light candles. We expect the coming of Christ. Listen for a word from God in Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The Word of God. May this light point us to the common light of Christ. Lily Mize, thank you. Doesn't she give us the taste of all the, the school Christmas music programs we've missed? Dressed in bright red, bright eyes, memorized melody. It's all the holiday goodness. And as the pastors call it, the cute factor. Thank you, Lily. It's this little voice with a big experience. I have memories of Lily's song when I was her age, set to animated scenes alongside the little drummer boy. You know that made for TV special? There's this kind of cherub cuteness in G-rated scenes. And a little voice belts out these lyrics, do you hear what I hear? Just like Lily. Familiar? Our university music department sang Lily's song in 2014 when they took the candlelight concert to the Fox Theater in downtown Riverside. Some of us were there. Do, do you hear what I hear? It was performed that night by a vocal group, a men's vocal group. Just before they sang, Dr. Elvin Rodriguez, who accompanied Lily on her song today, he stood in the center of the stage 
and he spoke, and I learned something about this little song. Gloria Baker and Noel Reynier were living in New York City when they composed this song. It's 1962, October. The song was from their own contemporary reflection on the nativity scene from scripture with this clever little plot, like a, a game of telephone. The night wind talks to the little lamb who talks to the shepherd boy who talks to a mighty king who talks to the, the people everywhere. Pray for peace, people everywhere. There's a child, a child who will bring us goodness and light. Everyone pray for peace. It's the 14-day Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, with Cuba and Russia on one, in one alliance against the United States. Miss Baker told the New York Times, you must understand, we were under real threat of nuclear war. And we were watching the busy streets of New York City, and we saw people pushing babies in strollers. That's what inspired us to include the line, pray for peace, people everywhere. When it came time to perform this song live, Miss Baker told the press that neither she nor her husband were actually able to get through the song, that the intense emotion of the threat of war, it broke them up. Our little song, she said, broke us up. The threat of annihilation by disaster was overwhelming. That particular crisis ended November 20, just a little while later, 1962, a few days before Advent would begin. The song was released and it sold more than a quarter million copies that holiday. Now it's been sung by hundreds of artists. Pray for peace, people everywhere. It was not simply a political plea. It was profoundly personal and profoundly human, profoundly communal, profoundly honest and profoundly challenging. We can kill one another or not. We have options. Lily, thank you. And Dr. Rodriguez, thank you. Thank you for dropping us off in the book of Isaiah with this song. The Old Testament prophet, he has his own memorized melody. Isaiah chapter 2, if you're following along in a Bible this, mor this morning. In the days come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning shears. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a poem we assign to the domain of dreams. Right, Isaiah, weapons will become gardening and farming tools. Yeah, we see you. That's a good one. Isaiah would push back and he would say to us, not so fast, not so fast. This little portion of Isaiah is also recited by the prophet Micah. It's a poem known in the ancient world or a song sung or a tune they sang. The Ten Commandments, remember, they're also recorded in two places in the Bible, Genesis and Deuteronomy. So this little poem about nations streaming into the presence of God, learning a new skill, it's in Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah, remember, is a big story in 66 chapters. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. These are people with a complicated history. I'm going to summarize it this way. It's either a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, or it's a tale of two dynamics, judgment and hope. Judgment, this diagnosis of the problem, 
and hope, this expectation of a bright future. God's judgment, remember, it's never the final word, yet it is a word, and it's a necessary word. God's judgment on evil as an invader in God's story. In Isaiah, God's people struggle. I'll call it survival seduction. They look to the left and they look to the right to see what the neighbors are doing and how the neighbors are surviving. Okay, let's try that. They're forgetting there to look above and to listen for the voice from above and trust providence from above. Survival seduction. Let me see what the neighbors are doing and let me just do that with a little more gusto. To which the prophet responds, you think Assyria is the problem? Because Babylon's right behind them. Isaiah will go on to mention all of their neighbors, Moab and Tyre and Egypt and Damascus. In Isaiah's world, death is just one infection away. Food is what you currently have in front of you. And your enemies are absolutely everywhere. Every human government struggles at some point with this survival seduction. Every human household, every human In Isaiah's time, they all swallowed the same lies, that that they were all operators unto themselves and their own families. The audacious claim in Isaiah is that Israel's God is in favor of Israel and in favor of every nation. It's the first united nations of history, God making a covenant promise, not only to Israel, but to every nation. When we open Isaiah, we are reading some part of this survival struggle To fill out the picture this afternoon, give yourself 30 minutes and listen to the Bible Project. They have two short videos on Isaiah. It's great for every age group in your house. Or in January, the adult lesson quarterly that we'll be studying is on the book of Isaiah for three months. The study guide is one launching point for your small group study. Isaiah 2, let's listen again. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills All the nations shall stream to it. This poem promises that there's a time when people will stream into the presence of God. For what? So that God can teach us. The next verse says that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Your Bible translation might say that they stream into Jerusalem so that God can give us the law. Some of the Bible translations say this, but law is too narrow and too limiting for the word Torah in Hebrew. That word means instruction and teaching. It's broad and large. God instructs us in a way how to walk in the world. The verse continues in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. God, our chief judge or arbitrator, authority this authority between humans and and the one who orders things. God will judge between nations and people so they, they will do something. The order of the text matters here. God will judge between the humans. God will settle things. God will decide the issues. It's God walks into the room and mediates. The the first image I get when I think about this is my mother walking in after a long day at work, four children arguing in front of the television. Everyone stop. Everyone quiet. Everyone go to your room. Mom and dad are home now. This is not happening in our house. I mean, that's the first image I get, and that's mild mediation, right? Truthfully, church, we haven't got a clue what it sounds like or looks like or feels like when God walks into the dispute and settles it. 
Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55, listen, you don't know, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God will judge between the humans and settle things, and we don't really know what that looks like, and I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait for God to show up in a world and settle disputes. Pick a dispute and imagine God walking in. I'm not talking about a shame-induced scene with some massive punitive punishment. Why? Because what I know of God is God is love and God can only express judgment consistent with God's character, which is love. God's reprimand, God's mediation, it's like nothing we've ever seen in this world. I can hardly wait for God to walk into the room. God arbitrates between the people, and the people respond to the arbitration. Isaiah 2 continues, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The people have only one response. They create instruments of peace. They commit to this new skill. They put, they, put, they put down their war manuals and they put their hands to work doing something creative and positive and good. Swords and spears are, are now plows and pruning shears. Isaiah tells us what he, what he sees. He, he sees this. It's a poem we assign to the domain of dreams. I mean, dreams don't really come true. See, we live in this world, and this world is a war mentality. War and all of its associated consequences. War on terror, war on drugs, war on poverty, war on homelessness, war on war. And this is without naming all of the warring battles with warring warriors and warring nations. We, we really do live inside war reality with war language and war mentality. And the Bible, if we're truthful, is an embarrassing witness of war reality and war language and war mentality. It's useful for us to remember that the Bible is not the final witness. The Bible points us to the final witness, Jesus. If we want to know what God thinks about war reality and language and war mentality, watch Jesus, who, who never picks up a weapon as he heals wounds. The difficult part of Isaiah's dream is that we rarely flip a switch and change our minds on these topics. We, we rarely wake up and simply decide one day, I'll lay down my warring heart and I'll learn skills of peace because the air we breathe is the air we breathe. When I was pregnant with Amanda, our oldest child, which it's her birthday today, happy birthday, child. When I was pregnant with Amanda, every appointment with the doctor, I asked about some rare condition or some rare potential or some extreme outcome Every visit to the doctor, I ran a worst-case scenario and then another worst-case scenario, month by month by month, all of this with the appropriate medical terminology crafted in this very sterile discourse. I mean, I really know something terrible is coming when this baby is born. I'm setting the stage for every abnormal outcome and a child born with multiple congenital problems. And one month, the doctor asked me, what are you reading I pulled out a little yellow book that I carried around with me. It was a textbook on obstetrics and gynecology that I found in a bookshelf in our house belonging to my medical student husband. She took the book out of my hand and she said, stop, stop it. Put that book down. It was a book on high-risk pregnancies and they're out. Stop, 
She said, you are over-informing yourself and you are buying tomorrow's problems that are not even yours and you're depressing me. She took the book and said, go, 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 go home and go for a walk. Go paint the nursery. Go prepare for the arrival of your baby, your healthy baby, and put that book down. If I was studying this Isaiah 2 passage another year, I would have a different thing to say about these verses. But this is 2020, and these days we drink devastating news like it's hot chocolate in freezing temperatures. Here's where I struggled during Advent, December 2020. Because it's been a year of adjusting our expectations. The deeper we've moved into the year, the more adjustments. Surely things will be better after the summer. And then when they're not, we adjust our expectations some more. We've learned in 2020 to expect less and to expect different and to expect disappointment. Expect exhaustion. Expect cabin fever. Expect cranky family and expect cranky friends and expect cranky me and expect isolation and expect loneliness and expect low energy. Expect low desire to get out of bed and get dressed and eat a real meal like on a plate with silverware and napkins and all the food groups. Just don't expect any of it. Frankly, expect nothing out of the remainder of 2020 and we won't be disappointed. We live in this situation that advises us to expect less and we dwell with a God who insists we expect more, so much more. Advent confronts us with this story that expects better and more and then asks me to live in this expectancy. Survival, seduction, this is not our story, friends. We see images this December of the first doses of vaccine in several countries, including our own. It's being called hope in a bottle, this vaccine. And we wait. Most of us are millionth in line for anything if we're taking this vaccine. We wait. Isaiah tells us that deep waiting calls for deep creativity. The prophet Isaiah gives us this little song. Do you see what I see? We don't, Isaiah. Do you hear what I hear? We don't, Isaiah. That's all right. He says, pick up your old weapons and shape them into something new, something useful, something that adds value, something that moves us from consumers to creators. So I dare you, I challenge you to create over the Christmas break. Get your hands and your mind and your body and your soul into creative work. The beginning of our story with God in the book of Genesis, we learn that our very being, our bodies, that we are the creative work of God. And then God shelters us in a garden and invites us, get dirty in the neighborhood, water and feed and caretake. The one request God gave us was to become creation partners, stewards and caretakers. We learn in the story that the very imprint of our creator, God, is given to us. We have creative capacity. All of God's creative capacity, God, God shares with us. When Isaiah, when Isaiah sees this iron broken into dozens of pieces, he sees people gathering up the scrap metal and creating and making and doing something with all of this potential. In a normal Christmas, the tension is between creating and consuming. This Christmas, the tension is more. We forget our creative capacity and we, when we lower our expectations. Deep waiting, it calls for deep creativity. So challenge your cynicism that dreams don't come true. Challenge yourself to become cynical about your cynicism, Brian McLaren says. Do you hear what I hear? We don't, Isaiah. We don't. 
Isaiah says, it's the sounds of people creating swords and spears become plows and pruning shears. Do you hear it? Do you see it? We don't. We'll then challenge our cynicism, church. Expect that we have the capacity to create peace. Expect that more is possible. I went to the back patio on Monday. I went out to take the trash, and I heard these Christmas tunes, and I see my kids sitting outside singing out loud. She's sitting in a pile of branches. These are scraps from the Christmas tree farm, two or three kinds of Christmas tree branches, and she scooped them up earlier in the week. She immersed them in water. She's been tending them like a mother hen for a couple of weeks, and, and now she sits in this scattered pile of clippings and snippings and sorting and bending, and she has a plan. It's taking a while. Mom, she says, do you know how much time it takes to make one of these wreaths? Snipping and clipping and bending and breaking these little branches. I mean, I thought I could crank them out in, in just like no time. But do you know how much time this takes? Look at how many branches I collected. She has bins of branches. Deep creativity. Deep, because while you're snipping and clipping and winding and humming a tune, things are happening inside of our mind and our body. Deep waiting calls for deep creativity, church. This week when Teresa came by, uh, she told us of several people close to her who have sick or have died, and she's weeping. And I asked her, what are you doing with your tears? Teresa said, I'm sewing and embroidering and I'm making. And I just keep sewing and embroidering and making. That's what I'm doing. We see pictures of Ed and Terry on their walks. They're bending down and picking up trash on the trail and the streets. It seems like nothing much, but then we remember that Isaiah tells us that our relationships, the relationships being renewed, they're also with the earth. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah reminds us that the earth will also breathe fresh and new, creating, not consuming. This week when uh, Titan an academy student stopped by the church. She wanted to drop off letters for people who are sheltering at home. In her spare time, she's writing letters of warmth and encouragement and hope and goodness. For who? I asked her, who are these letters addressed to? She said, who, whoever needs them, just mail them to whoever needs them. Or watch Rebecca Waring Crane. Visit her website, rebeccawaringcrane.com. She's an artist by trade, but these last weeks she's been wandering her neighborhood her project is called, Who's My Neighbor? And she's simply asking a couple of questions. Tell me about the time you moved into the neighborhood. And then tell me about a time in your house in the year 2020. Deep creativity. And then listening, what, to, what are the neighbors saying? Deep creativity. It's not a quick process, church. It's a thick process between creator and creation. Gloria Baker and Noel Renier, living in New York City in 1962, when they composed this little song, that little song that sold a quarter of a million copies around the world by December, that's the vision of Isaiah 2. That's a vision for deep creativity. The people shall stream into Jerusalem, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen.